Welcome to Crime on Caffeine. I'm your host, Erica. And I'm your host, Allison. Thank you so much for tuning into another episode. Today, we are sipping on some coffee that we were sent by my good old mother. Yes, thank you so much. Shouts out, Nancy. We are sipping on... Wait, I will say, we thought there was not any spooky coffees out there. And then when I got this package, I was like, okay, this goes perfectly with our whole little October theme. It's called Death Wish Coffee Co. And my mom sent us the dark roast. It says on the package, first of all, there's like a warning label. It looks like a warning label. It's got like a skull and crossbones. And it's like very kind of scary looking. (laughs) And it's the world's strongest coffee is what it says right on the package. So you know we hype today. A little too hype today. Can probably only have one cup at this point. I'm a little bit nervous to have more than that. I needed this today. It says, not a morning person, not a problem. <laughs> <laughs> kind of scary. We'll see. We'll see. Obviously, I'm drinking mine like I drink everything with a pumpkin creamer. Shouts out to the non-dairy Starbucks pumpkin <laughs> creamer that I can't find anywhere. So every time I find it, I buy eight. I can't find it either. I can only find the hazelnut latte and then the caramel one. I know. And they're both great, but you know, it's pumpkin season. It is. We're in full swing pumpkin season. So you need that one. But why don't we just head on into your true crime news? Yeah, we do have some true crime updates for you guys. First, I have an update on Jelani Day. So I think think we last left off just talking about how they were still searching for him. So he was reported missing on August 24th and his body was found in the Illinois River on September 4th, a month and a half ago. And recently the toxicology report was released, but they have not released an exact cause of death. The coroner said that it's still going to take some time to determine, but the police are saying that it was suspicious and that he died under unusual circumstances. His organs were extremely decomposed from the water. Um, Nothing was found in his body other than caffeine, nicotine, and THC, which makes sense because the last known footage of him was seen at the dispensary. But four different police departments in Illinois, including state police, are involved right now with the investigation, and they are urging anyone with any information to call 815-433-2161. Um, And his fraternity brothers have recently started a petition, which we'll go ahead and link for you guys. But they are urging federal authorities to take over the case, noting that the Bloomington Police Department has not handled it properly and that they, like, really don't care to figure out what happened to him. Um, Law enforcement right now, they're not releasing a ton of info. And they've explained that pretty much right now they're reviewing, like, hundreds of hours of security footage. So two days after he went missing, his car was discovered in the woods about 60 miles south of where he'd last been seen. His clothes that he'd been wearing that day were in the vehicle and the plates were removed, which makes me think maybe it's like a like a robbery gone wrong type of situation. But I just think the fact that like that day he had an academic commitment that he missed, I don't know, that to me, that's just very out of character for him, it seems. He's like a graduate student super successful. We have to be responsible to do that. So that kind of makes me second guess that theory, but I don't know. Hopefully we'll find out soon. I just feel so bad for his poor mother. I just want them to have answers. My second true crime update 
is one that I'm very interested in right now. I really want to know more because it's pretty crazy, but you might have heard of it. The disappearance of Cassidy Rainwater. So 33-year-old Cassidy Rainwater disappeared on July 25th, and she wasn't reporting until like a month later. Two weeks after her photo had been released to the public, the Kansas City FBI received an anonymous tip with a photo of her in a cage, partially nude. Before obtaining the photo, Dallas County, Missouri investigators named James Phelps as the last person to be seen with her. And so they went to his house, they questioned him, they like looked around, and he told investigators that he'd let her stay with him until she was like able to get back on her feet. But he said that she left and she was talking about like maybe heading to Colorado when she left. So they looked around like they didn't find any of her belongings, but they said it looked like the place had been like stripped. Everything that was in there was like recently removed. Sounds suspicious to me. Sounds very suspicious to me. So then they obtained a search warrant for his phone and they found seven other photos of her similar to the one that had been submitted to them. And so he was immediately taken into custody, and then they started looking into another man named Timothy Norton, who, according to court documents, said that he'd helped Phelps restrain her a day before she'd gone missing, and that he knew about the cage, he was involved with it, and all that. So they were both charged with kidnapping, and they are to appear in court on November 5th. And then on October 4th, the home of James Phelps burned to the ground. What? Hmm. So while authorities were searching the property, they found a tripwire. So they immediately called in the bomb squad who said that they found two like explosive devices on the property and authorities are saying that the cause of the fire was arson. So there must've been something in that house that someone else had been involved with because those two were still in jail. They're not showing in court until the fifth they're being held in jail. So somebody else must be involved that burned that house down. Oh my gosh. That is, Wild. Now, there have been a lot of rumors surrounding this case. There have been like unverified allegations of Phelps having connections to other missing women in the Ozarks, possibly being like a serial killer or a cannibal. And there have been a lot of unsolved disappearances in this area. So I think people are kind of just like hoping that if he does have some sort of dark history or something, he is a serial killer. He's something, whatever, that, like, maybe it'll shed some light on some other women who have gone missing there, like the Springfield Three, a lot of people are bringing up. I see people bring up Angela Hammonds. There are some allegations that there were, like, bags of human flesh or remains or whatever you want to call it on the property, and they were, like, labeled with, like, names and dates and stuff like that. None of this is verified. I will say that again. I've said that a few times, but I will repeat it again and again. Okay. House is burned down. Doesn't look like a lot is being released right now. Obviously, we'll keep you updated, but really just hoping for justice for Cassidy. And if there are any other possible victims, justice for those victims, justice for all their families. These guys are clearly wackos. Yeah, that is some scary ass shit. Mm -hmm. But it would be nice if they were able to like piece together some cases that haven't been solved. Of course, that would be amazing. Well... That was a lot to take in. Thank you. And I will mention, I know we only covered two cases that are currently going on right now, but we are keeping up with, I mean, the amount of missing people's cases right now, It it's just not okay. So we're trying to make sure we're covering all of those. 
Yeah. And if there's any story that you guys want us to talk about specifically, just DM us on Instagram at crime on caffeine or Twitter or wherever and let us know. Yes, please, please do. Also, we are almost at 7,000 downloads. I feel like we're going to hit it this week. Did you say (laughs) $7,000? I wish we had $7,000. Holy cow. No, 7,000 downloads, which partly feels like $7,000. Well, maybe. Although I I do wish I had $7,000. Or maybe it feels like a million bucks. True, true. (laughs) Because we've got you guys. I want waffle fries. Why did you say it like that? (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, everyone, for your support. We truly appreciate it. The more you guys keep listening, more episodes we're going to keep putting out for you. So give us your case suggestions, give us your coffee suggestions, and we'll just keep it going. Keep it going and keep it flowing. So let's flow on into this episode. Why did I say that? <laughs> anyway, we are continuing our spooky October cases, and this is one of them. So I literally looked up, I looked up scary true crime cases or like, that's what all my, like, like <laughs> as if all true crime cases aren't scary. I like, why am I so, you know, just absolutely dumb. <laughs> but today we are going to cover a case that happened all the way back in the 1940s. Oh boy. I know. We're taking it back, back. This is the case of the Texarkana Moonlight Murders, or people also say the Phantom Killer. Spooky. I know. So spooky. On February 22nd, 1946, Jimmy Hollis, who was 25 at the time, and Mary Jean Larry, who was 19 at the time, went to go to a drive-in theater. After their movie ended, they decided to take a trip up to Lover's Lane. No, that's always where it happens. <laughs> well, it's going to be happening a lot here, so get used to it. This was the Lover's Lane that splits the border of Texas and Arkansas. When things started to get a little hot and heavy in the car between the two of them, they were interrupted by a bright beam from a flashlight and a man's voice telling Jimmy to get out of the vehicle and take off his pants. Very forward assailant. Mm -hmm. The attacker brutally, for lack of a better word, beat the Mm -hmm. shit out of Jimmy. Oh. To the point where he was left in a coma for multiple days. Yes, but he did survive. They found his pants about 100 yards away from the parked car. And as for Mary, Mary Larry, I might add, I thought that was kind of a fun name. Mary Larry. She uh, she tried her best to run away, but did not succeed. Apparently, the attacker told Mary to run. So she scrambled towards a ditch. He told her to run towards the road. And then when he caught up to her, he beat her and sexually assaulted her with the barrel of his gun. What an asshole. Yeah. And the weird part is that when he caught up to her, he apparently asked her why she ran And she was like, well, you told me to. And he called her a liar. What? Yes. (laughs) Is this dude okay or no? You know, no. (laughs) 
So what they went through was obviously terrible, but they did survive. When they gave their statements to the police, they were not able to accurately identify the person that did this to them. Mary Larry insisted that the man was black, but also said that his head was covered with a white sack that had holes cut out for the eyes and the mouth. And then Jimmy said that he couldn't remember much, but he told the police that the guy was a young white man. So both of them had completely different stories. But this is where the whole man with a sack on his head, phantom killer look came from, is this original statement given by Mary. So with the lack of evidence and two victims slash witnesses, whatever you want to call them, that could not give a clear description, there was really nothing that the police could do to bring any justice to the situation. So you can imagine <laughs> that just a month later, the person would strike again. Back at Lover's Lane, another Lover's Lane oh named Rich Road, close to a local bar named Club Dallas, we have Richard Griffin, who was 29 at the time, and Polly Ann Moore, who was 17. They were shot in the back of their heads, and their bodies were found the next morning between 8 and 9 a.m. by um, just somebody passing by. The weird thing was that apparently they had been shot outside of the vehicles and then placed back inside the vehicles. I don't know why. There was a 32 cartridge shell found, possibly shot from something called a Colt pistol. Don't know much about guns. Yeah, like that's a drink. Colt 45. That's a liqueur. What? Allison. It's a Colt pistol. Come on. Okay, but Afro Man was not in 1946. It was not a Colt 45. (laughs) I didn't say he was. (laughs) I'm saying, like, that's what that was made from, like, the name. Are you sure? Colt pistol. Positive. Yes. Well, then, yes. And positive. (laughs) (laughs) Mythbuster. Anyway, there were still no leads and no description to go off of, but two attacks just a month apart. Speaking of a month apart, we are in April now of 1946. Damn, this dude really be taking breaks. The first attack was February, the second attack was March, and now we are in April with Paul Martin, who is 16, and he picked up his high school sweetheart, Betty Jo Booker who was just 15 at the time. He picked her up from a dance that she was playing saxophone at. And they, of course, made their way to Lover's Lane, where they were met with their untimely deaths as well. They were both found within three miles of Paul Martin's Ford Coupe, which was parked outside Spring Lake Park with the keys still in it. Paul Martin's body was found around 6.30 in the morning with four bullet wounds, one through his nose, one through his ribs, yeah. Oh, my one gosh. through his right hand, and then finally, the last one was in the back of the neck. Oh, my gosh. All just yeah. sound like terrible and they places. also make me think that he was trying to defend himself. Like, his, the one went through his hand, through his ribs, so he might have been, like, trying yeah. to turn away, and then one in the back of his neck. A search party was started to find Betty Jo Booker, and when her body was found, it had also had two bullet wounds found in it, one in her heart and one in her head. I know. The weapon that was used was the same from the first double murder, 
again, a 32 automatic Colt pistol. All right, boys, we're piecing yes, some shit got together. Some things that make sense. So at this point, our victim count is up to six total. Four are dead and two who were left in critical condition. The police knew at this point that this was the work of the same person. So they got the FBI and the Texas Rangers involved, including a legendary captain. His name was Manuel. Oh, God, I'm going to butcher this. His name is... I know. You better His not. His name was Manuel Tarzasas Gonzalez. Anyway, he went by the nickname Lone Wolf. I tried. We are just going to We're call just going to call him Lone Wolf. Captain Lone Wolf. He explained that through the examination of the bodies, it looked like both of them had put up a fight, just like I had explained. Um, poor Betty Jo's saxophone was eventually recovered six months later, right by where her body was found. Isn't that so sad? Um, Broke my little heart. She was 15. 15. What the fuck? Interesting victimology. Yeah, none of the ages make I a whole lot of like sense. So different. I mean, everybody's at lover's lane, but we've got like 25, 19, 29, 17, 16, and 15, you know? Yeah, definitely all younger. So, I mean, maybe yeah, you just like, couldn't really it. tell. But yeah. still, pretty big Usually difference. if somebody has like a definite MO, they're, they don't stray. Yeah, very rarely when it comes to age yeah, and race do they stray. Yeah, but I think really like an age-race situation. I think it's more of a location and like couple situation. Mm-hmm. He doesn't like couples. It sounds here. like it. And that would make me sad because I am a high school sweetheart. Aww. Terrible. That's true. Okay. So now that authorities were onto the whole Lover's Lane location of the previous murders, the killer had to change it up a bit. On May 3rd, so again, just a month later, 1946, Virgil Stark, who was 37, was just minding his own business, reading his newspaper in his living room, literally in the living room of his own house, when two bullets came through the window and through his head. Mm-hmm. His no. poor wife, Katie, came into the room to see her husband dead in his chair in the living room, and then she was hit with two bullets in the face, and she survived. She was covered in blood. Yes, I swear to God. What? So she saw the killer like coming for her, basically. And so she ran out of the house covered in blood. She was only in like her little nightgown. She made it to her neighbor's house. Obviously, the killer was gone before the police were able to get on the scene. But the weapon in this case was believed to be a 22 caliber automatic rifle. So... Oh, so he really switched it up. I, I'm just, like, trying to understand how she is, like, walking around to her neighbors after getting shot in the face twice. Where, what, what is, like, what is left? How is, you know, I think you? the same thing about certain cases we come in contact with. How do some of these people survive? You were shot in the face That's just twice. crazy to me. I don't get it. Anyway. Mm-mm. So, obviously, we have no idea what his motive was in this case because it wasn't, like, a lover's lane situation. And, honestly, investigators were confused as to if they should even link it to the phantom killer. 
which he wasn't called that yet, but they were just kind of baffled by this one. So with now eight victims, the attention of the media was pretty heavy in Texarkana. There were articles in the Texarkana Gazette showing a photo of a flashlight that the killer had apparently dropped at the Stark house. It had like a red handle and apparently it was a big deal to print things in color, but this image was printed in color so people could see that this flashlight had a red handle. Fun fact. There were uh, Life Magazine articles written about the town and their mass terror, including the measures that people were taking in order to remain safe from the killer. People were panic buying guns, keeping them loaded on each of their nightstands. They made makeshift beds on the floor with like wooden pallets so their whole family could sleep in the same room. People were getting protective dog breeds. Women who could afford to packed their kids up and checked into hotels when their husbands were away on business. Yeah, 100%. This reminds me of um, the city of Boston when the Boston Strangler was going around. And I mean, it's the same as like the Ted Bundy stuff and like just all. Uh, yeah, it's so crazy like to me. Oh, the case so of scary. The Ripper is what I was thinking about. Like how many people fled Gainesville mm-hmm. and just didn't even come back for school. Mm-hmm. Um, this is also interesting. People were buying blinds in window shades so much that the town completely ran out because they didn't want people to see. Well, they didn't want to see out of their house, but they definitely didn't want someone to see into the house, which was the main situation. Right. So basically that's when the town of Texarkana started to become this just Mecca of news reporters who gave the killer, the nickname, the phantom killer or the phantom slayer. Those are like interchangeable, apparently. Whatever. He was a phantom. Dude with mask <laughs> on head. Well, sack on head. On June 28th, 1946, we got a lead. Peggy Stevens Swinney, who was 21 at the time, got arrested in regards to a stolen vehicle. She had just married a man named Buell Lee Swinney, who was 29 And he didn't have such a good reputation for himself around town. They had gotten married literally a few hours before. So when I said she was the new bride, brand new, fresh off the altar, they got married two hours before the arrest was made. They didn't catch Yule for another two weeks. I'm confused as to why they were not together two hours after they got married. But Yule had been getting in trouble since he was a kid. Nothing for nothing crazy. Everything's Everything's okay. However, when they picked him up for the car thievery, in my eyes, it's thievery. And they didn't spell check me or blue line me. So it's thievery. So new word for everybody listening. Thievery. Car thievery. (laughs) I like it better. Anyway, he said something really weird. Are you ready? He said, will they give me the chair? My babies, you got picked Uh, up for stealing cars. When in the world has that ever been punishable by death? Is he like, is he trying? I'm just confused. The chair? So this made the police's ears perk up a bit. And they thought that they may have accidentally mm-hmm. picked up the phantom killer. <laughs> how, how lucky. So when Peggy was arrested, she told police all about the car thefts and 
Then she weirdly mentioned something about a murder, and she described it to be similar to one that had taken place while the Phantom Killer was on the loose. But there was no evidence, and she was legally unable to testify against her husband, so he only went away for the car theft and not any murders that they may have claimed. He ended up passing away in jail from cancer in 1994, so he spent basically his whole life behind bars. He Poor didn't, didn't even make it to the chair. Strangely wanted to or questioned it no idea yule (laughs) was suspected by most people to be the phantom killer but he was not the only suspect there were multiple one of the most likely and probably the strongest bet was college student hb tennyson which they nicknamed him duty dotty d-o-o-d-i-e duty (laughs) straight up I would have just gone by HB, but you know, some people do their own thing. He was 18, (laughs) and he ended up confessing to some of the murders in a suicide note that was found after he ended his own life in November of 1948. So that was just two years after all of the murders had happened. To this day, the case remains unsolved. Yeah. Love that. Doing an unsolved case, huh? Huh? You like that? (laughs) I didn't actually want to, but since we were doing spooky cases, I found this one, and just thought it was kind of interesting since basically this figure with the with the sack on his head Phantom. and the eyes cut out became kind of an urban legend and he inspired horror films that we love to talk about in the month of October. In fact, the true crime case actually inspired the 1976 horror film called The Town That Dreaded Sundown, which apparently was Pretty huh? largely fictionalized, but still. It was also... Okay. Never heard of it, but... <laughs> I I had I never heard of it either, honestly. But um, there was also a remake created in October of 2014. So if you want to watch the old one, 1976. If you want to watch a new one, 2014. This is what I thought yeah. was really weird. The film... And I know that not every film based off of a true crime story has to be exact, but this film featured the famous Hookman urban legend and begins with a young couple parked on Lover's Lane, ends with them discovering a bloody hook on the car's door handle, even though there was never any kind of evidence that pointed to there being a bloody hook anywhere. So it was just something yeah, added for like a, a little it was spice. A spice element. It was a little bit of a spice element. Apparently, though, this film came out just two years after the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Black Christmas, and then just two years before the 1978 film that is my favorite film in the whole wild world, Halloween. Bless you, Michael Myers. How is the Halloween the films? If you haven't weekend. seen it, I highly recommend it, but you do need to watch the original, the 2018 and then watch Halloween Kills. Because if you haven't seen it, you're not going to understand it because it picks up right where 2018 left off. But there's flashbacks from the original. So if you haven't seen the original, you're going to need to see it. Okay, great movie. I feel like I always am doing cases inspired by movies. (laughs) Like Jennifer's Body, Dream. But I like that. You name it. I've done it. It's more relatable. Yeah, Not relatable, I do like but you know. To have people realize, oh, like, oh, I've seen that movie. I didn't know it was based off of that, you know? Mm-hmm. 
but yes, they took the victim's description of the sack over the head and the eyes cut out and made that the depiction of the killer in the movie. The film has been screened in the town every year around Halloween at Spring Lake Park, where one of the murders took place. So it has become a Halloween tradition. A little I bit about that. creepy, yes, but it has become a Halloween tradition, and that's why I wanted to do this case as well, because apparently it has to do with Halloween. Well, not like the case has to do with Halloween, but like they play it. Yeah, I like that connection. Me too. So, it also sparked a 2014 book called The Phantom Killer, which was written by a former Texarkanian, how do you, how would you call them? Texas, Texarkan, Texarkanian, yeah. Anyway, a former Texarkanian Gazette reporter, James Presley. This book was actually made in a case for Swinney's guilt. According to Texas Monthly, James Presley said the case cried out for a reliable record to preserve the known facts, dig up new ones, and separate the substantive evidence from the spurious and imaginary. Writing this book was like assembling a jigsaw puzzle from scattered small pieces, some of them missing. Beautiful poetry. Before creating the book, he actually wrote an eight-part story for the Gazette on the 25th anniversary of the events, which was in 1971, I believe. He was not going to write a book because he thought no one would be interested in reading a story that had no definitive answer to who did it. But in 2001, he changed his mind because he was actually approached by a film crew filming an episode of the Learning Channel show, Mostly True Stories, Urban Legends Revealed. So like some like Bigfoot type of shit. The show was basically going to give wrong information about the case to the public and make the police department look really bad Why? saying things like there were fingerprints that were found and they knew the identity, but they wouldn't disclose any of the information. And James confronted them and was like, guys, this is all false information. And they said, that's why we call the show mostly true. <laughs> oh. He was like, I'm going to write a book and I'm going to actually tell the truth. Cool. The same year, Texarkana hosted a forum bringing together scholars and forensic experts to investigate the question that actually has never been answered. Who did it? The Texas Department of Public Safety once called the serial killings the number one unsolved murder case in Texas history. Damn. I wonder what it is now. Probably so many. But that is the end of the actual case, so I can get into a little bit of a profile. Yeah, I want to hear this because this this person yes. was all so over the place. So this is not really easy to find, um, but I found something to go off of. DIY, <laughs> a little bit of a DIY. Basically, Dr. Anthony LaPala, who was a psychologist at the Federal Correctional Institution in Texarkana. Stated during a 1946 newspaper interview, so the same year everything was happening, that he believed that the killer would be a white man between the ages of middle 30s to 50s. Kind of a large age range, in my opinion. I I think that was, I mean, you covered a lot of ground there. (laughs) He also considered the killer to be motivated by a strong sex drive and he would be a sadist. 
And at the same time, being a cunning planner, these are the words of Dr. Anthony, a cunning planner with a clever, intelligent, shrewd, and dangerous individual of the type that often remains not apprehended. Absolutely. And he's definitely organized the amount of self-control that he had to be able to like go to this one place, wait a month, and then the next month he's doing the same thing. Locations of everything that it was three different lovers lane locations and then somebody's which is absolutely significant i feel like that has a lot to do with it and that's why um the strong sex drive and the sadism i was like oh yeah that makes a lot of sense anyway dr anthony lapala also said that the killer knew at all times what was being done in the investigation and he knew that the lonesome roads quote-unquote, lonesome roads, were being patrolled, and that's why he chose to go to the Starks' house, because he could no longer get away with going to Lover's Lanes, as I said previously in the episode. So basically, I'm just like Dr. Anthony LaPala. I figured that out. I'm sure a lot of you figured that out. I'm not that smart. (laughs) You might as well be. So, as I mentioned above, the strong sex drive and the sadism was what was believed to be the reasoning for the murder. So, I wanted to talk about that a little bit. I have two different definitions of lust murder, and then I have one of sexual homicide, and one of, this is such a big word, guys, (laughs) erotophonophilia. I know, but I have a few of those. So MacDonald said in 1986, lust murder is a sexual factor that is clearly apparent or deeper study will sometimes reveal that sexual conflict underlies the act of aggression. That is one thing. And then Kraft Ebing said in 1886, so literally a hundred years before that, that the connection between lust and desire to kill and the sadistic crime alone becomes the equivalent of coitus. Of what? Do you need a definition? Sexual um, intercourse. I might. Makes sense. It we should bring it back. Everybody out here be doing coitus. <laughs> Let's sexual. Oh, no, not. I've already started. I just texted everybody I know. <laughs> We're bringing coitus back. <laughs> I just made the song. <laughs> bring coitus back. Yeah. And that's where I need to continue on my path here. Okay, so next I have a definition from the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. It just says that one. It doesn't say which volume. But it was in 1990, if that helps, on where to find which volume that is. Yeah, like four. I feel like um, Money Money, he was volume four. So, erotophonophilia is... Murder associated with sexual sadism, which is just a very straightforward definition. And that is what I believe the phantom killer was going through. He had a rotophonophilia. And then lastly, sexual homicide. Douglas Burgess, Burgess and Ressler in 1992 said this involves a sexual element or activity as the basis for the sequence of acts leading to death. So I put that one in there just because it said that it involves sexual element or activity as the basis for it. 
And since he was always going to these lovers' lanes and targeting people who, you know, were getting intimate with their partners, they were coining. Yeah, that's what they were doing. Coinacying? Co- I don't know. But yes. And then lastly, the other thing mentioned in this case is mixed lust and power being the driving forces when it comes to the reason for killing. So I believe we've touched on this before, but I'll go into a slight psychological definition of power killing. Basically, the primary motivation of these serial killings is to control and dominate your victims. They enjoy the process of murder. That is, they enjoy stalking, capturing, torturing their prey. They find it sexually arousing, but the act of murder is normally the most satisfying and final expression of their power and control over their victims. They are patient, and they kill their victims slowly in order to prolong their sadistic pleasure. I put this in there because I believe that this person did enjoy the process of murder. He obviously went to multiple different lovers' lanes, stalked these people, and, you know, the act of murder was what he was going after, and that was probably the most satisfying for him. Yeah, and honestly, when he told that girl to run and then chased her down, and that was such a clear indication. I was of like literally you took the words right after my out, right out of my mouth. I was gonna say also him Whoa. making the people do things. Clearly, he yeah. wanted the, just all the control. But that's all I got, y'all. Loved it. I, I love our spooky and cases. Honestly, when I picked that case, I had no idea about all the Halloween stuff in it where it just became this this little Halloween moment and as I was reading I was like wow I'm a genius for picking this it's so weird to me that it's like celebrated yeah I really don't like that they watch the movie uh, on Halloween in the park where it happened so (laughs) Texarkana maybe we should not do that I get tradition but some people did die um, they did. And yeah, that's all I've got. Thank you for listening to my spooky, Lukey case. I'm sad because I, I know I was thinking that when I was writing mine, I was like, dang, we only have one more spooky case left and I know what it is. Michael passed oh, October. October. We're going to need parts for this baby. Okay. Thank you guys so much for listening to this one though. Okay. And if you want to know what the heck the next one is, you're just going to have to keep listening. Okay. Listen, follow, subscribe. We are so thankful and happy to have you all. And we're super duper excited to basically almost hit 7,000 downloads. Yes. Thank you. If you guys want to go ahead and recommend any cases or coffees, head over to our website and you can submit one or go on social media at Crime and Caffeine everywhere. You can message us there. If you want to buy us a coffee, so that we can keep drinking coffee and making these episodes. Just go on our website. It'll pop up right away. Um, Also in our Instagram bios uh, is a link tree. And that has the link to our website, link to buy us a coffee and link to everywhere you can stream. And I mean, she really just hit the nail on the head with all that. So we covered everything. Keep it spooky. Keep it crime and keep it caffeine. (laughs) That made no sense. We one day we'll but come up for with now we're not going to use that one but thank you for letting me test it out on you guys <laughs> let me know uh, on instagram what you thought of that one all right guys <laughs> thank you for listening and we will be back next week